Welcome back to a brand new episode of Raidercast. I'm very excited about this one because we have a returning special guest in the form of the fantastic folklorist Sasha Coward. Thank you. Um, it's lovely to be back here. No, I'm very, very pleased to have you again. Particularly with an alliterating title. <laughs> I couldn't not. So today we are going to be discussing some more myths and monsters of Tomb Raider and how they relate to their real world counterparts. I love that you said real-world counterparts, like we're going to accept that these are definitely real things. Oh yeah, of course, they're, they're out there somewhere, we just haven't found them yet. <laughs> I like to think so anyway. Although Facebook keeps recommending I go on some cryptid university course. No, don't go there. No, no. no. So don't think that's a good place no. for you, Chris. <laughs> Right, okay, we're going to dive straight into this episode. The first creature we are going to be talking about is a Chinese dragon. In Tomb Raider 2, we are told the story of an ancient Chinese emperor who harnesses the power of a mystical dagger, which when he plunges it into his own heart, he transforms into a gigantic dragon, this huge, huge horned dragon. Can breathe fire it's a very sort of stereotypical dragon it doesn't have wings mm -hmm. then later on in the game lara follows an italian mobster with the same goals he wants to harness this power and he does he stabs himself with a dagger and he transforms into this gigantic dragon as well and lara faces off against him in the form of this dragon now one thing about this dragon is that when lara is fighting it it apparently seems to die and is reborn. It sort of it gets knocked out. It gets back up again. It always has this sort of. You're cyclical... never gonna keep it down. Yeah. Carry <laughs> on. Eventually, Lara does defeat it by pulling this dagger out of its heart, and it dies. So, what can we talk about? The real-world myth of Chinese dragons. So, the story you described um, to me, it sounds like a bit of a hybrid between European Western dragons and the Chinese mythos of dragons. I mean, to start with, the whole idea of a dragon is something that exists in folklore and mythology all over the world. Um, pretty much every civilization, every group of people you can imagine has some kind of dragon, all the way through like the world serpent to Quetzalcoatl in Aztec mythology, those could all be seen as kind of like dragons. Um, the earliest kind of dragon-like creature is probably a serpent in kind of Australian Aboriginal folklore. Wow. But that's just because we have it in record. There may have been ones way, way before that. But thinking about Chinese dragons, so uh, they're referred to as long. Um, apologies for that possibly terrible mispronunciation. But so Chinese dragons, they are similar to, to kind of the Western medieval classic Dungeons and Dragons dragons that we picture uh, in that they are partially reptilian. Uh, many of them can fly. They are these big magical creatures. Some of them do breathe fire, but in many ways they're very different in that nearly all Chinese dragons are wise and most of them are benevolent. So they're kind or at least they are lucky. They are not set against man. Whereas in the West, the traditional dragon is the evil creature that will roast an entire village. I suppose it even goes back to biblical language of the red dragon and the dragon. Yes. And the beast. 
Yes, yeah, so the origins of dragon, so the word dragon comes from a Greek word, and it's a difficult one to kind of track down, but it kind of translates dracona or drac, uh, which basically means to see or to look. Um, oh, wow. Which is a bit weird, but the, the idea is that it's the idea of a creature that kills with its gaze. So the idea being a bit like a basilisk or something that strikes fear that simply looking at or to be looked at this creature could kill you. So it's not a straightforward origin. It doesn't mean fire lizard or something like that. It's a bit of, bit of a weird one, that word. I'm immediately reminded as well of Medusa. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the Greek myths, basilisks, Medusa, they kind of overlap the idea of, of sight and death and curses. The, the ancient Greek sort of image of a dragon was not quite what we'd recognize today. Um, probably a bit more like a leviathan. So many of them might even come from the sea or live in water. In the Bible, you have some biblical accounts of dragons, which are kind of, that's where we start to get the fire breathing. Comes into the Western folklore anyway. But nearly always, um, until relatively recently, where we have some, you know, how to train a dragon and modern mythos of where dragons can be good and kind and, and trainable. Um, dragons are a bad thing. They're a scary bad thing. Here be dragons. That's a scary place where you're going to get killed. Whereas in Chinese folklore, Long, they tend to be good. So the idea that you would, firstly, to sacrifice yourself and turn into a dragon. Well, in Chinese folklore, dragons can become people, and yeah. Oh, wow. So many emperors would would have said that they were descended from dragons, um, because dragons were kind of like gods. I now think I've heard the phrase dragon emperor dragon outside emperor. of Tomb Raider. Yes, yes, so that's a real, a legit Fantastic. thing. Fantastic, so this is where they would have got the idea from, I assume. Yeah, so so dragons taking the form of humans, humans taking the form of dragons. Dragons were a very much shape-shifting creatures. So a little bit like um, gods in, say, ancient Greece, where you have Zeus could transform into anything to come and interact. Like a swan. Yeah, or golden rain. Oh, God. Yeah, all kinds <laughs> of very problematic, weird things there. But dragons could also turn into humans to interact with people. In fact, there was a famous dragon that apparently transformed into a human so that he could steal jewels, so that he could fit into buildings and houses and steal jewels, because Dragons, just like in Western tradition in China, like pretty things. I really identify with that sort of <laughs> dragon. I love it. Yeah, but I think the the interesting is yeah, they they're good creatures. They they can give you wishes. They um, you know the, if you've ever watched Never Ending Story. The... Only very recently. Wow, mm. I'm disappointed in you, but I'm well... pleased that you have seen it. Um... I think I may have watched it as a kid, but then not again until <laughs> I was like. 30... <clears throat> <laughs> Edit that out. Uh, so Falcor in that, he is a luck dragon who is its own thing that is kind of a bit of a hybrid of a lot of stories. But he's more like your traditional Chinese dragon in that he he's, he's lucky, he's friendly, he's a bit mysterious, uh, a bit archaic, ancient and wise. That is the idea of the dragons. In fact, um, the dragons in Chinese folklore are one of four kind of founding creatures. So there are these powerful creatures. One of them is a white tiger, a black turtle or tortoise, a dragon. And these are kind of fundamental elemental creatures okay. that kind of keep the world in balance. They are 
kind of deities. Oh, I like this idea, okay. Yeah. So it's like, the, the another thing that's interesting about Chinese dragons is they have lots of different traits. So their scales are supposed to be like carp, like koi fish. They're meant to have tiger-like eyes. They're meant to have snake or serpent-like bodies. And the idea being that they have all these different things from different elements. So they have elements of sky and water and fire. So they're actually in harmony. They're in balance. And many, um, so one of the theories, there are many theories of where dragons come from, where do we tell these stories? One of them is uh, dinosaur bones. So there, there are some amazing theories. And the thing is, they are theories. So dragon, um, dragon bones, whoops, dinosaur <laughs> bones, don't get too excited. Dinosaur bones have definitely been found and have been referred to as dragon bones. So we know that in the um, in Catholic and Christian churches, ancient churches, they have dragon bones, which are dinosaur bones. And we know that Chinese, basically, paleontologists, early, early paleontologists were finding dinosaur bones and were trying to attribute these to their folklore, which came first is a tricky one to tell. There's even a theory, and I, I definitely think take this one with a massive pinch of salt. It's a lovely idea. It's almost a bit too lovely. That the, the bones that were found of dinosaurs first in different parts of the world informed the kinds of ways they depicted dragons. So for example, if you were to find a triceratops-like skull, you might create a dragon-like creature with a slightly squatter, more shortened snout. Whereas mm. we may have found something a bit more like your sauropod or your kind of um, maybe a, a, a T-Rex or something, and that would create more of a European dragon-like head. A sort of big snout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like dog-like, it's yeah. often described. But the, the, to be honest, that's almost too good to be true. I'm sure does, all these yeah. things came together. It's a nice idea that fits a little too yeah. neatly. The other one is whales, mm. not just the place. I'm talking about the animals, <laughs> um, Welsh the dragons. skulls are incredible. Exactly. So bits of whales washing up. Uh, and also, if you see a whale uh, in the distance diving out of the water, if it's far away and it's silhouetted, it looks like a dragon emerging from the sea. And in Chinese folklore, many of their dragons live under the sea and they come out of the sea. So that's an interesting one that we like don't that. necessarily have in, in Europe. So your dude kind of sacrificing himself, that seems like a bit of a sort of mishmash of Japanese tradition. Maybe there's a sort of yeah. bit of soul transfer or something along those lines involved. Yeah. A bit of kind of borrowing from, from different Asian cultures. I mean, um, Japan has dragons. Ryu is the Japanese word for dragon that have their own tradition. And then soul transference. So dragons can turn to humans and humans can turn to, into dragons. That is possible. But those dragons are much more likely to be good creatures. Not all of them most of them would be good. So you've then got this kind of hybrid of those different stories. I like it. That works really well. Yeah, it's cool, isn't it? I really like it. Yeah. Dragon, yeah. Dragons are cool. Not as cool as mermaids, but you know, what can you do? <laughs> <laughs> Next up is something that tantalised me as a child because I just loved the entire idea of it and I think it's something that films like Indiana Jones further made me curious and, and intrigued about and that is Ancient Curses. In Tomb Raider 4, Lara is raiding some tombs in the Egyptian desert. She comes across something which she doesn't know at that time is the Tomb of Set. Set being the 
desert god of chaos and storms. From atop this sarcophagus, she takes an amulet, hightails it out of there. And the first opportunity she gets to examine this amulet, she realizes she has unleashed a terrible curse, a plague upon humankind. Effectively, she has to go about setting right her wrongs and saving the world because she's a little bit selfish and inconsiderate. We love her for that, it's fine. In this regard, obviously the, the tomb of Set and this amulet are, are not real and the idea of curses in general is debatable amongst the people of Earth, but there is one very, very famous apparent curse and that is the curse of the tomb of Tutankhamun. Yeah. What can you tell us about this? Because I loved this story as a kid. I think we all did. I used to have this little book of, actually of cryptids and mysteries and it had a whole like double page spread. I think it's, it is, it is a wonderful story. To disappoint all of you, I think it's a wonderful trail of coincidences. And, and maybe some things that are actually not just coincidences, but the idea of cursed ancient things goes way back and it's not just the Egyptians. There's this idea that, you know, today, uh, in the Western world at least, we have this kind of generally kind of religious beliefs based around Judeo-Christianity and the idea that other religions that came before are a little bit dodge, a bit pagan and a bit dangerous. So coming across a tomb as a God-fearing, you know, uh, devout religious person, as many people who had gone through the education system and were wealthy and, you know, respected in the 1800s, in the late 1700s, would be a really scary experience because you're seeing something that you've basically been taught is heretical. You're seeing a civilization that has never appreciated the God that you are being taught is the one God and the right way to be. You're seeing these hieroglyphs and drawings to animal-headed deities, which from kind of from the UK, that was our past. We had animal bestial gods. And that's something we've kind of tried to repress. It's like a scary reminder of the yeah. past. We also used to have a pantheonic religion. We, you know, this is not the only religion that's ever existed. This predates that. And that makes it dark and scary and frightening and kind of... Uh, Ripe for mystery. Yeah, exactly. And also, you know, the Victorians loved a terrifying, penny, dreadful story with lots of death and murder and evil gods. And particularly if it's a broad, uh, you know, <laughs> lovely bit of colonialism going on there. If it's far away as well, then of course it's bad and deviant because they do things differently over there. Sarcasm quotes. Um <laughs> So Tutankhamun, so Tutankhamun uh, was a pharaoh, well, he was a, a young man, pharaoh, and his name means the living image of Amun, Amun being um, a god. You may have heard Amun-Ra, that is when combined with the god Ra, god of the sun. With the sun disk. Yeah, so these, you know, like with many religions, in fact all religions, gods sort of get mixed and matched together. At different points in time, they get spoken about in different ways. But Tutankhamun, like all pharaohs, was believed to be the living embodiment of a god. He was, as we might say today, a godhead, like he was the human equivalent of god, and therefore an incredibly sacred being. And so, like all people with power, who was respected, who was seen as a god, who was buried after death, he was buried with all of his possessions, he was buried with things to sustain his spirit after death. 
to keep it happy. And also, everything that was with him had to stay with him. So all of his organs, whilst they might have been extracted, they were kept in canopic jars, they were in the tomb with him. And the belief being in ancient Egypt that your body was also your soul. So if you were to remove a finger away from your body after death, then your soul would not be able to continue its time in the afterlife. Everything had to be kept together. The mummification process was about preparing your body for a journey into the afterlife, for preserving that connection between body and spirit, therefore disturbing it, taking something like Lara, you know, go to accessorize like the rest of us if you want a nice necklace. <laughs> taking something from there disrupts. So tomb raiders were always being um, dissuaded. Like, grave robbery was a grave, grave sin. A grave oh, sin. I didn't even mean to. Amazing. Sorry. Oh, God, I'd make a fantastic dad. Um, <laughs> so, the yeah, stealing, that that's, that's really sacrilegious. That disturbs the sacred process of allowing this godhead, this god boy, to go back to where he belongs. And therefore, in many of the um, pyramids, you will see fake tunnels, um, that would actually not lead anywhere or would kind of labyrinth like to mislead yeah. people. So you'd have the, the entrance that would look like the main entrance that will just lead to a dead end or to a sort of a little fake chamber and then the real chamber would be somewhere else. As far as I know, there aren't any like proper booby traps. Like you don't <laughs> get like float falling floors or, but you know, please correct me if I'm wrong. But, yeah, this is not something you're meant to do. So the process of disturbing that has always been seen as kind of a, ooh, you are disturbing the ancient dead, and we already think this religion is a bit scary and pagany, and what if they take revenge? There are also many kind of symbols and cartouches. So cartouches are uh, carvings and symbols that you will find, particularly around um, ancient Egyptian royalty, that are meant to be sort of seals, or guardians, protectors. There are um, symbols known as ka, uh, which um, may take the form of basically a person with, with bird wings. And these are kind of sometimes guardians of spirits, or they are symbols of the spirit of the person buried there. And so there's a lot that's ripe for, for getting a bit scared. So when Howard Carter famously found Tutankhamun's um, burial site, it was incredible. The stories of the lantern catching the gold, just a sea of incredible ornaments, almost laid out as a museum piece, ready to go, just thousands of mm. things. Incredible find. And they started to ship things out. The story goes, the, the first thing I heard is that there was a kind of a young, young boy who was an Egyptian boy who was helping and kind of running errands. And he ran back to the house where there would have been a bird cage uh, which had a canary in it, a pet canary. And instead of a canary, they found a cobra had eaten the canary and had crawled inside the bird cage. Oof. Which, as the cobra is a symbol of the uh, Egyptian royalty, so particularly um, associated with Wajet. So Wajet is a protector deity. She is a goddess with a snake head. So you've got all of this stuff going together. There's this evil snake appears the day that we discover this tomb 
and it's eaten the canary of the people running the expedition. And then from then onwards, I know it's it's just I just I love the sort of image that Tutankhamun's spirit is up there going, those bastards, right? Go and eat his bird. Go and get his bird. <laughs> That'll show him. That sound yeah. When you think of it that way, it sounds a bit Tom and Jerry. That here's the really <laughs> scary way that's kind of described. It's the idea that you have infiltrated the tomb of the pharaoh. So now the pharaoh has infiltrated your life and your existence. The snake is a symbol of the will of the pharaoh and of the Egyptians is now active in your world, which is a terrifying concept. And so I know, ooh. I like it, I like it. And so it all kind of goes from there. You have loads, loads of people, at least 10, maybe 12, associated with the expedition who start dropping dead in weird ways. So Lord um, Canavan, um, he has a mosquito bite uh, right next to a shaving cut that gets infected Eesh. and he dies painfully of blood poisoning. You have Sir Bruce Ingham, whose house burnt down. George J. Gould, who just a little bit later dies of pneumonia. You have Hugh Evelyn White, this is really sinister, who commits suicide by hanging himself. Apparently, leaving the um, suicide note, I have succumbed to a curse which forces me to disappear, was his final words. Again, is that real? This is what is said was left in blood by his body. Now, again, it sounds a little bit too good I to mean, be yeah, true. I mean, yeah, that's a little bit sort of Hollywood-esque, but... The is, issue is... I, I wonder if he did. People love this. Yeah. So what is true and what is hearsay is difficult to fully know. I would imagine, no, that sounds too wonderful to be true, but it was very popular. <laughs> too wonderful. Well, um, no, it's awful, <laughs> but it's also kind of exciting. And you've got, like, Adrian Ember... The name Ember is a really unfortunate name here because his house burnt down and oh, he yeah. burnt alive. The reason being that he and his wife got out, he was sent back because he realised he'd left a copy of a manuscript he'd been writing, which was called the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which he'd <laughs> been writing based on the finds oh, wow. um, from, from Tutankhamun. Went back inside and him and the manuscript burnt alive. So loads of awful stories of mysterious ways of people dying that shouldn't have... Avery Herbert, who had every single tooth removed from his mouth because they couldn't find this infection that was taking over and finally died. Uh, and so this got became very, very popular, as I'm sure you can imagine. So Sir Arthur Conan Doyle of Sherlock Holmes um, fame, he became obsessed with this and he was convinced this was revenge from what he referred to as elementals, uh, which had been put into place by the ancient Egyptians. The weird thing is, like, that's total conjecture because there is no such thing as elementals. If you speak to an Egyptologist, they have many... It's not a concept. It's not thing. a thing. I mean, they have, they have guardians. They have all kinds of things that could enact revenge. But this is, this is uh, Conan Doyle's own thing. And let's remember that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle also believed in fairies. He loved this kind of stuff, bless him. <laughs> very into the supernatural but it's it's a really every art there's so many artifacts associated with what they found there and many of them some people um would give it gifted them because of course back in the day some of it would end up at the british museum or another museum but some stuff you just give it to a wealthy benefactor you'd end up with like a mummy hand on your desk the victorians Oof. were obsessed with mummies so yeah mummies were big they were very in 
and this kind of series of unfortunate deaths struck and then you just end up getting this fascinating sort of things that you hear. So people describe how when one guy died, his dog, his terrier, back in the UK, dropped dead, howled and dropped dead. See, now this... So when you were talking about the canary... Yeah. ...and the distance of someone dropping dead in Egypt, but also some one of their pets yeah. at home, I think all of these stories have mixed together over the years because the one story I remember from when I was young was one of the archaeologists who had a pet canary back in the UK when he died at exactly the same time yeah. his canary chirped and dropped dead. Yeah. And and there It's like all urban legend now. There are so it's really difficult to tease out exactly what is true. And uh, you know, we know the people I've described, they did die. They did. Some of them would have like died seven and a half years later and people still attributed it to the oh. curse. So it's it gets a little bit tenuous. But still, kind of, just it's wonderful story fuel. There's another one as well that all the lights went out in Cairo the moment one person died as well, exactly the same okay. time. Again, it's a wonderful story, but it, to me, reeks of coincidence. Yeah. Because the way that everyone died is so different, you know, it does, it does seem a little bit odd. There have been some theories. Some people stated that there is, um, there's a particular kind of fungus that is present mm. in, um, it can be present in tombs, and that some people may have inhaled this, which may have caused some of the blood poisoning, the low immune system, the pneumonia, which later killed them. I did wonder if it was something like stale air from the tombs. Or yeah, something. you can get it. You can get high levels of, I think, carbon dioxide and ammonia, which can harm you. But um, modern day kind of archaeologists have kind of said you're more likely to get sick after you've done the dig and you go to a diner than you are actually in the tomb. Wear a mask. Wear a mask. Yeah, we're all learning that, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, so it is It is a powerful idea. Would, would the Egyptians want to curse people that dug up their dead? To be honest, I can't really say. I think they'd be really pissed off because, you know, you are doing something which they would see as one of the most sacrilegious and disrespectful things possible. British Museum watch out <laughs> and that's just watch one out. culture forget like all the all other, the other. Oh every gallery multitude of curses from around the world yeah. you know if you think that you know an egyptian curse let's talk about Vudan and ishtan and you've got every single possible culture ready to come down on you so go to the british museum at your own risk <laughs> We don't want to be there when all of these curses like team up and just happen on one day. Just going to say, British Museum, if you're listening to this, please still pay me to do work because <laughs> I, I feel for you, your collections are deeply problematic, but they're also very interesting. On that note, we will hop forward yeah. to our final monster of this episode. In Tomb Raider 5, it is a series of flashbacks throughout Lara's life one of which is presumed to be her earliest ever adventure. She stows away aboard a little tiny boat off the coast of Ireland with a priest who is on his way to investigate mysterious lights and apparitions on a little island offshore. One of the things that Lara discovers is a lake and inside that lake she finds something that can only be described as a sea hag. It's the closest thing within Tomb Raider that we've ever seen to a mermaid. It is 
more hag-like in appearance. It has arms, it has a long sort of fish-like tail, and in terms of the story of the game, of this adventure, there isn't much information about this thing. It's something she encounters, and in a cutscene she has a bit of a tussle with it underwater. And I think she punches it or she knees it in the face, as you would. The other characteristic of this, I say it's sort of gnarly and hag-like. It is female presenting, it has a mm. chest. Eventually Lara defeats it by taking a shiny coin, throwing it into a cage and distracting it. Now, in another episode, I've talked a little bit more about this adventure of Lara and demonology. Demons are very easily distracted, mm. some of which even to levels of OCD, apparently. Ah, yes. So I then liken this to the, uh, well, Lara throwing a coin for it, and it felt compulsed to go and investigate, and then she trapped it in a cage. So she doesn't kill this creature. It is found in a Celtic environment. It is sea hag-like, mermaidish, gnarly. What have we got that wow. comes close? I mean, you've there is there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, you've got your so you've got your mermaid folklore if there is a kind of a mermaid style thing going on here even if this is a, a dark horrible creature let's remember that nowadays when we say mermaid you picture uh rainbow starbucks and uh cutesy 13 ariel. yeah ariel mm. and it's 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 become quite sanitized uh mermaids were would have been in a, be a bestiary uh, you know a, a list of monsters and were representations of the danger and horror of the sea. And whilst mermaids can be beautiful sirens that draw you and distract you, or kind of flirt with sailors, or maybe even rescue them, they can also be horrible creatures that eat sailors. They can, if you take, for example, the idea of the Fiji mermaid, which became really popular in the sort of 1800s, this was where bits of pickled fish would be sort of taxidermied onto bits of desiccated monkey uh, stitched together and you create these, these taxidermied nightmare fuel like horrific looking mermaid-like monstrosities and you'll see these in many museums around the world they're very popular uh, pt barnum circus but you can find them in museums around the uk as well but there is one at the british museum the horniman museum i think i've seen the horniman one yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's gnarly it's a sight to behold it's like everything that's worst about a baby mixed with everything that's yeah it's just it's hor it's horrendous it is absolutely horrible and if i remember correctly its arms looked way too long for its body yeah to the degree where i didn't picture it in an underwater environment i closed my eyes and i saw this thing dragging itself yeah. along my kitchen floor in the middle of the night and me yeah. being terrified it's 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 designed to do that it's designed to be horrible but but people have been creating disgusting sea creatures horrible mermaids because Mermaids can also be horrible, and around the world you have stories like um, in uh, Aboriginal folklore they have a creature called the York York. It's called York York because that's the sound it makes. York York. Yeah. So an amphibious creature that will prey on children. Um, again, often female presenting, they lurk in lakes and then will draw you into the sea and drown you. But that's yeah, that's the other side of mermaids. That's the side of mermaids that I I find really fun and fascinating. That they are uh, beautiful creatures, but they can be dark, twisted, nasty creatures too. So that image that you've described is playing into that archetype of the dark and terrible. Also, 
the twisted feminine. So um, in archetypes, when we say archetypes, in fairy tales and storytelling around the world, we have particular characters that we sort of write and rewrite again and again. And for women, there's the classic one, which is Mother Maiden Crone. Yeah, So the triple goddess. Exactly, yeah. So you have this idea and uh, that when a woman is represented, she is either, either going to be a maiden, so either virginal or kind of sexual or a mixture or hybrid of both, the mother, so the kind of the, the most uh, beloved symbol, Mary, caring, nurturing, and then the dark side, the feminine, is the crone, the old, with knowledge and wisdom, but possibly malevolent. So you kind of get this kind of creature. And going on to the term hag, so we're talking about well, witches and ancient women, the kind of idea of taking the female form and turning it into something terrifying. The idea being like, what could be more scary than a woman that eats children? Now, the reason for that, you've got Hansel and Gretel and everything, it, it, this character type of, of a, a witch that that takes what a woman is supposed to do. When I say supposed to do, we are talking about thousands of years of Western culture prescribing from a patriarchal perspective how women should behave. And when you turn that on its head for a long time, that is seen as terrifying because anything that you expect that you then flip on its head is often been turned as a, a moralizing story or a way to frighten children. So yeah, the, the hag is like everything that a woman shouldn't be old, shouldn't be hideous, shouldn't be wicked, all of these things. And then as she's associated with water and the sea, you have this kind of other specific thing with, with witchcraft, you have sea witches. So you have many, many sea witches okay. from Ursula in the Disney's The Little Mermaid, but she also appears not in her octopusy form in the original uh, Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. What's her form there? Well, she's probably more like a mermaid. She looks okay. more like Ariel. She's just kind of a haggard, kind of witchy version of that. Uh, Ursula in the Disney film is a Sicilian sea witch, so she this is half human, half octopus, which you will sometimes see in Greek and Roman Ooh, mythology. Okay. M much less common, though, than uh, mermaids. But you have, like, Calypso. So Calypso was the sea witch in... Um, the Paris Odyssey. of the Caribbean? Yeah, but she's... Ba yeah, she is, <laughs> she is, she's in that. And I, I love that they gave her, like, a Jamaican form because, you know... Um, West African tradition also has its line of mermaids and, and sea witches. Mami Wata being a form of kind of female elemental spirit that sometimes looks a bit like a mermaid. So that's that's a nice connection they've drawn in the film. But uh, Calypso is, yeah, from an ancient kind of Greek narrative, she is a sea witch or a, a, a sorceress who is associated with the water. In fact, sometimes it's said that she is born a, a nymph and she is born of the gods of the sea, or sometimes she's the child or one of the titans associated with the sea. And she basically captures Odysseus and keeps him sort of hostage, although he's not too keen to leave as well. She kind of keeps him hostage partially, 
by being really charming and offering him her love and um, immortality and a safe place to stay and singing and music using her feminine wiles to there keep... we go there we there it is yeah. there's the sexism did you spot it <laughs> um yeah so she, she kind of keeps him captive um the word calypso coming from the greek calypto which means to cover uh, or to deceive conceal. yeah mm. to conceal yeah so she that's that's another archetype the idea women of the sea sea is mysterious women are mysterious if you are a patriarchal man and therefore you create this archetype of the wicked misleading woman so sea witches are this interesting and dark mix of everything we're scared about of the sea and everything we fear about women the same going for mermaids you can be killed by their beauty but also it's terrifying if they're ugly um you can never win <laughs> so your your sea hag sounds like it is combining a lot of things the thing with the uh, coin is really interesting because it sounds like you've discussed this with demonology but the idea being that yes demons and the devil are associated with obsessive compulsive tendencies the idea being that if you are being pursued by the devil, you should throw rice or salt onto the floor mm -hmm. and they'll need to pick them out, yeah. pick up the air, or you can... Um, That's another it's a luck thing, isn't it? When yeah. you're eating, you throw salt over your shoulder. Because they have to pick it all up yeah. obsessively. Yeah. Or you can do something, you can do salt and pepper and they have to pick, sort them out obsessively. Which is someone, I'm someone who's diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. It's interesting to see that archaic connection between mental illness and being demonic. Mm. And you wonder whether... Oh, I never thought that. Yeah, well, a lot of people who maybe were displaying these traits counting... Maybe possession. Yeah, exactly. Goodness me, that's an interesting connection. Well, it's a long kind of explored and discussed thing that people that have had um, exorcisms or who have been perceived as being possessed by demons may have just what we would term today as mental health mm. problems different yeah. issues schizophrenia obsessive compulsive Certainly, disorder yeah. yeah so it's uh it's it's a really interesting amalgam i like to hear when video games don't just go we're gonna do a mermaid they've kind of drawn from lots of sources and sort of created something a little bit unique that fits into a lot of different stories that was absolutely fantastic. And I learned so much, and this was one of my favorite episodes I've ever recorded. Oh, Chris. So cool. Thank you. That oh, was thank really you fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us again for Monster Manual Volume 2. <laughs> well, you've got to pick some more monsters for next time, then. Damn right. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be back for Monster Manual Volume 3. Can't wait. So thank you so much. Thank you. If you enjoy Raidercast, don't forget to like and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at RaiderCastPod and Instagram at Raidercast. Until next time, keep safe, keep happy, keep raiding.